And most importantly, welcome to DirtOnDirt.com. Welcome to the first ever Rigsby Report podcast. I am Michael Rigsby from Flow Racing. First time I've actually got to say that. Michael Rigsby from Flow Racing and from DirtOnDirt.com. And this podcast is a long time coming. I started Dirt on Dirt. Uh, I shouldn't say I. Amber and I and Todd started Dirt on Dirt back in 2007. Uh, nearly 13 years ago, it'll be here soon. And people have been trying to get me to do a podcast that entire time. And honestly, this past year, there has been so much that has happened in my life from the sale of the company to Flow, which has gone awesome so far, to the industry changing. I, I like to joke, people are like, oh man, this industry is changing by the year. The industry is not changing by the year. The industry is not changing by the month. It's not changing by the week. The industry is changing by the day. So I kind of just felt like now was the time. It just felt like I have a lot bottled up inside of me for a lot of years. And let's just be honest, Dirt on Dirt has always sort of handled the dirt late model industry and the dirt track industry with kid gloves a little bit. We've always been a little more delicate than some people wanted us to be and maybe that I wanted to be. And that's fine. That's sort of the business model that I adopted and that Todd and, and Amber and I's philosophy was. But I kind of felt like at this point, there was just a lot boiling over inside of me, a lot that I wanted to get out, thoughts that I had, just general, in, just in general things I wanted to say. There's interviews that I've wanted to do. And I'm talking about really interviewing people, not just, hey, man, how was last weekend? G- good run at Portsmouth. Not that kind of stuff. I really want to dive in with drivers with crew members, and honestly, more than just late model people. We may interview sports figures on this podcast. We may interview NASCAR people on this podcast. Um, you know, One of the interviews I want to do on this podcast is a guy like Jody Shannon, a guy that's really well-known in the short track industry that uh, for those like hardcore late model fans that people outside the industry might not know. People like that that I want to have on and that I want to talk to. That's what I want this podcast to be. I want it to be a collection of my thoughts on dirt late model racing and beyond. I was thinking about the best way to phrase that. Um, dirt late model racing and beyond. I want, I want you guys at home to listen to it and get an hour into this thing and go, wow, he is me. He is dirt late model to the bone. And he gets us in a way that nobody really on the media side has before. That's one thing I think I've prided myself on with Dirt on Dirt is I'm your media member. I'm a guy that has a ton of professional media experience covering the NFL, covering everything else, but I have my true passion is in dirt late model racing, and I want that to come through. This is going to be my attempt to be as truthful as possible without being disrespectful. I'm not going to just drag somebody just for the sake of dragging them, but also to be totally frank, I'm not going to care as much about feelings as I might have in the past. I'm not going to hurt anybody on purpose. But also, I'm not always going to care about the ramifications. There was always something bigger to worry about when I was the sole owner of Dirt on Dirt, and we don't have to worry about that anymore. And the, the folks at Flow, Mark Floriani and Mike Levy and everybody have given me carte blanche to go out and just say, Rigsby, go get it. Go get it. Say what you think. Say what you feel. Because those that are around me in private know I've got a lot of thoughts, and I'm a lot more vocal in private than I am on Late Model Live or I am on the air and that's going to start coming out more. We're not going to be TMZ. Somebody asked me, you're going to be like TMZ. I'm not going to be 
videotaping the party that Dan Rice puts on at Florence Speedway or the Eldora pre-party. That stuff we're not going to do. But I'm also not going to sugarcoat things. If I don't like them, I'm going to talk about it. If, if a promoter runs a race till 3 in the morning because there was nine support divisions, I'm going to call them out and be like, this is ridiculous. We can't do this anymore. We got to be better as an industry. This cannot happen. So those are some of the things that you're going to get. I'm still going to do Late Model Live. That'll happen about 12 times a year, roughly, uh, mainly around big shows. Turns in the studio with me. I'm not going to put him on turn. We can do 12, right? Yes or no? He's shaking his head yes. We can do We can do 12 a year. He's actually working while listening to me record this opening podcast. Um, that's not leaving. It's just we did nearly 100 Late Model Live so far, 100 episodes, and people have no idea how much work that show is. And with my flow schedule now, flying all over the country trying to secure live rights for flow racing and for Dirt on Dirt, uh, that's not going to be possible. This just allows me that more free-flowing schedule where I can flip the microphones on if something really pisses me off or if something really makes me happy. It's not all going to be negative. I can just flip the microphones on and go. So that's the why of the Rigsby Report podcast. The how of We Have Arrived Here is somewhat similar. Like I said, I got a thousand pent-up thoughts, and the industry is just changing so much that we want to change with it. Podcasts, have, obviously, they've been big for a while, but really exploding now. This allows me that, 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 that platform to get out there and kind of say what I want when I want. Um, and and that's, that's sort of the how of it, the how and why we've arrived at this point. Not every Rigsby Report is going to follow the same format, uh, but by and large, it'll be me riffing at the beginning of the show like this, just stuff that I want to get off my chest or I want to talk about. Sometimes I'll have a guest in the beginning, but sometimes I won't as far as not our feature interview, but just kind of somebody in the beginning just riffing about a weekend or something with me. I'll have a, a feature interview segment in the middle, um, which is going to be fantastic. Every week, I'm going to pick somebody I think that's hard hitting and just uh, really get a fascinating look into somebody's life, be it driver or whatever. Uh, but like I said, just free-flowing, truthful, and something that I hope you guys like. Uh, we're starting with a bang, too, uh, later on in this episode, episode one of the Rigsby Report. I have wanted to interview Jeff Purvis my entire career, and I have never got the chance to. I'm actually staring at a picture of him in my studio right now. I mean, look at this dude. Look at this dude. He was the golden boy. Uh, so Purvis is coming up in a little bit on the Integra Shocks and Springs hotline, and I'm excited about that. P Jeff Purvis is just not in the public eye very often, so I am excited to get a chance to, to rattle on with him for a half hour or more later. Uh, some thoughts I've got off the top of the show. PRI this coming weekend. Let me just say it first. Everybody's always like, hey, man, you looking forward to PRI? You excited about PRI? Rigsby, PRI. I'm like, PRI's fine. It's no disrespect to PRI. I am just not a huge PRI lover like some are. I think part of it for me is I go to 100 races a year. So all of these people that I'm about to see at PRI, I have just spent 11 months with and seeing them all over the country. So I know for some people, let me take my boys at Dyer's Top Rods, for instance. Those guys, it's a party for them, right? They go and they do the show from 9 a.m. And Roger and his staff are unbelievable guys. They build, obviously, the best product on the market. Let's be clear there. But it's exciting for them. They go, they get to hang out in the bars and restaurants in Indy, and they get to do all that stuff. I don't know. I just get to do that stuff all year. So I'm kind of like, it's fine. It's, I don't love it. You know, it's, there's always some shenanigans at PRI, but by and large, it's okay. So, you know, if you're wondering if I'm excited about PRI, Nah, it, it, that's, that's kind of where I stand on that. Uh, do have some quick thoughts. Uh, there's a piece of news coming out this week at PRI that 
I'm not I'm not big on teasers either, but I'm just going to lay this out there. This is going to make major waves. Like it's a big deal. You're going to hear it on Thursday at the show and you're going to go, "Wow, Rigsby wasn't kidding. Holy shit, that is kind of a big deal." I cannot say what it is right now, uh, but you'll know it Thursday and you're going to be like, "Wow." I, I would say honestly, it's one of the bigger industry shakeups of the last decade. Um and you're going to hear on Thursday. I think it is anyway. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm overselling it a little bit, but I think it's a big deal. I think, I think it's a big deal because of, of the, the who and the how and the why. And I just think it's a, I think it's a big deal. There's a lot more layers to it. We'll flush it out at PRI, but uh, that's a teaser right there. Another PRI note, if I have another person walk up to me and say, hey, Rigsby, you know, the deals don't get done on the show floor. The deals for PRI get done afterwards in the bar. I will punch that person in the face <laughs> if, I, if another person says that to me. Maybe this goes back to my overall average feeling about trade shows. But like, why can't we just do a deal on the show floor? Why do we have to do the deal afterwards in a bar? And I'm a drink. I'm a drinker. I'm a guy that drinks. It's not like I have anything against that. But I don't know. I just find that a little ridiculous. Like, we got to wait until afterwards to do the deal. How about we make our time efficient and do it now? I want to look over at Turn and see. Turn, am I too angry? Thumbs up or thumbs... No, no, he thinks I'm just the right amount of angry right now. It's not really anger. I'm just kind of, eh, like, let's just get the deal done now. I don't need to wait until afterwards to see you at some random piano bar in downtown Indianapolis. Let's just do the freaking deal and be done with it so we can all go home. Uh, early peek at the World of Outlaws schedule. I'm actually recording this. Their schedule, by and large, is out uh, at this point. Um, I think, you know, overall it's solid. Um, there was, there was a lot of jockeying on this schedule. I'll say that, um, one of the dates on this schedule, uh, was on top of a, another event that I did not like it on top of that got shuffled, uh, which was good. I'm glad that happened. Um, but it was going to be at one point we were headed towards an insanely cluttered spring weekend in dirt late model racing, uh, with one of the races that was on this schedule, um, here's the thing too. I'm recording this on Friday and their schedule is out on their website and the date I'm talking about is not on it yet. So I can't say, t- I don't want to say too much cause I don't know if they're releasing it Monday or if they're releasing it at this PRI show Thursday. But, uh, but yeah, it was the, I think by and large the LS, uh, have put together a pretty decent schedule. Uh, but there was, there was some, some shit going on there for a minute where there was some, some spring dates that were not fantastic that got shuffled around. So I'm glad that happened. Uh, but PRI in general, will have full coverage of this weekend interviews with you know, 30 plus guys, Ben Shelton, Dustin Jarrett, myself, we will all be there, uh, and kind of have, uh, everything taken care of from that end. But in general, uh, enjoy PRI. If you're going, uh, you know, I don't think, do I need to do the stupid thing where I'm like, Hey, make sure you wear comfy shoes and you know, blah, 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 blah. My biggest tips are this. The biggest annoyance at PRI is when you can't read the damn name tag of the person because it's spun around. And I see people looking at my name tag all the time uh, because they're like, I think this is that guy from Dirt on Dirt, but I'm not sure. I wish is Just have your name tag spun around, okay? Have your name tag facing forward. White guy from Omaha or, or white guy from Knoxville, Tennessee, have your name tag spun around if we could. If we could. Help us out there a little bit, please, if you could. I would appreciate that. And breath mints, too. Everybody's doing a lot of talking. A lot of bad breath at PRI. A lot of bad breath at PRI. So, so please, have breath mints if you could. Uh, a couple other quick things. Cochran ran the Gobbler on Thanksgiving weekend. Uh, they just had a $15,000 race 
over Thanksgiving weekend. It was actually five grand Friday and 15 grand on Saturday. It was pretty good too. And promoter Chris Martin said they had a really good crowd. Our viewership, um, and we've signed a long-term deal with them, are going to sign a long-term deal with Chris, was great. Uh, Chris told me he's going to make it even bigger next year. More money, bigger event. Bloomquist told me that he thinks Cochrane could be the best racetrack in the Southeast if they put a little time and effort into it. He believes that. Obviously, the time management needed work, right? At the beginning of the, the podcast, I talked about, hey, um, you know, this they, the races that are going too late. Chris knows, okay? I can blast him all I want on the air right now. It was not good. The time management situation was not good. He knows it was not good. He knows it's got to get better. But Chris has kind of said, hey, we got we to gotta get better at that. So, you know, the non-wing sprint cars have turkey night on Thanksgiving. Um, maybe this is our thing now. Maybe this is, now that we just race all year, screw it. Why not, right? The Gobbler will be our Thanksgiving weekend late model thing. This thing could pay $20,000 or more for super late models next year. Don't forget 411 also, Thanksgiving weekend race with Mitch McCarter and the guys at 411. So, I don't know. Maybe maybe this is it now. Maybe we are Thanksgiving racers, officially. And one last thing before I get to Purvis. Uh, turn, you know I wasn't getting through the first the first episode of the Rigsby Report without talking about hot lap qualifying. And this is, I think this is for Shane Clanton because Clanton always gets confused about what I want. I just want a series to take a chance on hot lap qualifying. And when I say this, everyone thinks I want passing points. No, I don't want passing points. I mean, I don't mind passing points. I don't hate them like some people do. But here's what I'm getting at. Here's where we lose time at a dirt track event, okay? Is everybody gets lined in the lineup shoot, which takes a ton of time. They come out and they hot lap, which takes time. Then they go back. Then some support class hot laps. Then the late models got to line up again. Then we got to qualify. Then they go back again. Then the support classes come out. That feels insanely nonsensical to me. It is a huge waste of time to have to line them all up and hot lap them and then line them all up and qualify them. And I know there's some challenges with the racetracks and stuff, but we're smart people. It's 2019. I mean, we're sending rovers to Mars, for God's sake. I know we can manage to get a racetrack ready to hot lap qualify on. I don't want to see these guys twice before the heat races. I only want to see them once. And if you have to do five laps, I'm fine with it. If it's okay, hot lap qualifying, these guys get five laps, next group get five, fine, fine. I just don't want to see these guys twice. And it will help in time management. The first series that goes to hot lap qualifying, I'm just saying it right now, Turner. You ready for this? You ready? I am going to personally sponsor this series. What should I give them? $1,500? $1,500 sponsorship to the first series that goes hot lap qualifying. And it could be called the Michael Rigsby Award, and we'll give it at the banquet to either series. I'm just saying it right now. I'm going to give $1,500 personally out of my pocket. I got a little change turn. We just sold dirt on dirt to the series that does this first. And, then, and I should say national tour. The Montana Late Model Association does not count for this. I'm sorry. It doesn't. It's Lucas or the Outlaws, whichever one. $1,500 at the banquet cash. We'll figure out what exactly who gets it or how. Maybe it's the most fast times. of That's what it is. Most fast times of the year. Whoever gets most fast times during hot lap qualifying, $1,500 from Dirt on Dirt. Book it right now. Not from Dirt on Dirt. I'm not even going to spend Flo's money. My money. My personal money, $1,500 damn dollars to the first series national tour that does this. We'll give it at the banquet for the rest of my life. We will give it away at the banquet. This is not complicated. And I like how Derek always says, 
well, you know, like, you you worry about hot laps. This is my Derek voice. You worry about hot laps, but, like, nobody gets there for batting practice during a Major League Baseball game. Here's the difference, dum-dum. And I'm calling Derek a dum-dum. Is that every Major League Baseball game in the history of time, if it's supposed to start at 7 o'clock, what time does it start? 7 o'clock, every time. If I tell you a dirt late model race is going to start at 7 o'clock, maybe one out of five times they start at 7 o'clock. So you can go, you do or don't have to go to batting practice because you know for sure at 7 p.m. that baseball game is starting. We don't know that in a dirt track race. So therefore, that hot lap dick around time matters. It matters. I promised myself, it says in my little notes here, don't get too worked up. I'm worked up. I got too worked up. I've spent $1,500 and I'm angry in Rigsby Report episode one already. So that gives you an idea what the first part of the podcast is going to be like. Sometimes I'll have a, a friend on discussing things with me, and, uh, and sometimes I won't. But uh, that's it. Let's get to Purvis. Joining me on the Integra Shocks and Springs hotline is one of the greatest dirt late model drivers of all time. And someone, this guy, he was like mythical to me when I was a kid. Jeff Purvis was like a mythical creature in that 15 car. What is that, what is that half horse carrot? It's like a minotaur. A centaur or a minotaur? I think it's called a minotaur. That's what Purvis was to me, like this mythical being. Clarksville, Tennessee's Jeff Purvis is our first official guest on the Rigsby Report. Jeff, I appreciate you doing this, man. I know you don't do a lot of interviews and you don't talk to the media a ton. So thank you so much for doing this. First things first. Thank you, Mark. Yeah, of course, man. I'm very excited about this. But first things first. That's quite, that's quite an introduction, man. <laughs> I mean it, man. I really do. I mean it from the bottom of my heart. What is first question? What is Jeff Purvis doing now? And I want the full boat business, personal, everything. What is Jeff Purvis, Dirt Late Model Hall of Famer, doing now? Well, during the time that I was doing the, the dirt racing and pretty much all of my racing, I've always been in the scrap metal recycling business and the garbage business. And, and uh, when I was racing, I did it in a pretty big way. And when I Finally retired from racing. I stepped it up a notch, and and um, that's just that's pretty much what my, myself and my family we, we've always done: is scrap metal and, and trash garbage business. I'm assuming it's you treat it kind of like you treated racing, right? Nonstop, full time. <laughs> that's what my wife says. She's a, she's had she's had some discussion with me about about my my hours and my time, and, and basically how I need to change some of it. Do you have any? We're going to get to racing in a second. Do you have hobbies? Uh, There's things you do around the house. Are you a yard work guy? Are you picking up sticks? Are you? What is Jeff Purvis doing when he's not working at the scrap metal business? I would love to say yes, but the uh, the truth to that is, I mean, we you know we 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 travel some. We you know I really don't have any hobbies. That's really that's odd, odd to hear me say, but but uh, I just you know we spend time with the family and we. You know, we 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 spend a lot of time in well not a lot of time we spend some time in Florida and we we just uh, but I I really don't you know basically our, our hobbies is 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 our work. It's, how big is that scrap metal business now, Jeff? Not to get too personal, but how many employees do you have, and how how big a business are you turning down there? Somewhere right around right around the two hundred number of employees. Wow. And uh, and then and that's on that's on the scrap metal side, and then we have some recycling. I mean. Some, uh, transfer station yards and uh and on the on the garbage side there's another hundred or so so we've got quite a bit of employees and a lot of moving parts every once in a while 
I will see a photo of you at a race, but it's very rare. You know, when Jeff Purvis pops up, somebody's taking a photo and it's on Facebook. But by and large, I don't really see you at the racetrack much. Uh, this might sound like a dumb question, but do you still like racing? Do you still like going to races? And what is your relationship with racing right now? No, I, I still love racing. And, and I've really gotten, I don't know what's drawn my attention to it, other than there's a few drivers out there that's come along that's really, you know, sparked my interest as far as watching them race, like their style of racing, uh, from NASCAR down to, to the, uh, not down to, I think it's equal playing field all the way across the board. but. You know, the uh, the late model dirt cars, sprint cars. I've got. It seems like in the last few years, I've gotten to where I've watched more and more of it because of some of the talent that's coming coming through. Who are those guys? You said those guys. Take me through a few of them. Who are the guys that interest you? I don't know. You know, like in the on the cup side, Kyle Larson has caught my interest way early back when he started running. You know, running against the wall and watching somebody do something that I I like their style of racing. You know, they're for the longest time. He, he ran into the wall somewhat. He was doing it, but he, he seemed to. He, he, he is a talent to watch, I think. And, you know, the Casey Elliott. And, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of good talent that's come, come along recently. What about on the dirt late model side? Who's a dirt late model guy you like to watch or are impressed by? Jonathan Davenport. I think he's, he, he's, he's fun. When he comes out of the pit, he's wide open. And I just, I, I, I like his style of racing. And he seems to, he works good with the people. He's, he seems to have a good package. That is a compliment that Jonathan's going to like. I can tell you right now. <laughs> JD's going to like that compliment coming from you. When you look at dirt late wow. model racing, in, in two, as we head into 2020, when you just kind of look at the sport as a whole, what do you see? And I'm going to leave that open-ended. What, what do you see when you look at our sport? There, there's, a, there's a, I don't know, that, I think the sport is still, he's still trying to figure out what it is myself. That's just my thinking. You know, as far as you know, the late model, the you know, the 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 big motors, the big you know, that's always that's always a good deal. And then I watch some of the crate stuff that that puts on a really good show too. And and I don't know, you know, the, the economy will dictate what it is really. If the economy's good, you know, there's you know, there's a lot of money to spend on the you know where cost doesn't matter. And then when when it slows down, the racing's still really really good when you start watching some of the crate stuff. And I don't know, I, th- I think there's, you know, there's, there's room for both sides right there. I think the crate, if they figure out how to you know, keep the cost down and up the horsepower, maybe 50 to 100 horsepower, which is a lot, that's, that's easier said than done. And then um, I think, you know, eventually they're going to find a happy medium there with the cost and the speed, you know, is all affordable and it's, the speed's still there too, I think. That's my thoughts. Well, you mentioned the crate thing. I wasn't going to get to this till later, but it's a perfect segue. People don't really realize how instrumental you were in the crate engine becoming part of dirt late model racing. Mike Vaughn is one of your very good friends, the creator of the Neesmith series back in the day. And you kind of pushed him to get, you thought the crates could be a solution for late model racing. Do you still feel that way? And what were you thinking at the time is why you kind of got behind crate racing? I I I saw a need for more affordable, good racing. And, uh, and Mike and I, you know, we became good friends years and years back and, 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 and still are to this day, you know, a couple of weekends ago, my wife and I spent, spent a weekend in Nashville and he and Heather, his wife. And so, yeah, but I was, I was, you know, about as equally as impressed with Mike. He did, you know, he, he was 
yeah, I mean, maybe I was pushing it, but he was, he was, he was pushing all. So it was, I don't know. I just, I saw that, that, that you know, that could, that could, that could help everybody. And I don't know why, why I can't answer the reason why I thought that it was going to be. And I still think it's got, I think it's got a lot of legs and I think it's going to end up being the future of racing. But, um, you know, but there again, that's just more, more, more rules, which nobody, nobody likes. Well, you mentioned that Mark Richards always says, you know, and I don't know what your relationship is with Mark or what your relationship was. The more oh, rules, I, I like Mark. Okay, it, you know, the more rules, the worse things get. Kevin Rumley says the same thing. You, you kind of die on that hill too. You feel the same way. The more rules, the worse late model racing is. No, I can't say that. I mean, you know, there again, I, you know, Mark Richards was around with, with Rodney Combs, and you know, back in the day of the the wedge cars with the big wings and stuff. I mean, I love that kind of racing too. So. Yeah, I'm kind of, I'm kind of, you know, I'm kind of a double-edged sword right here. But the, uh, um, I, I think you know, there's, you know, there's always have to, have to be rules unless you just, you know, just run what you run what you run deal, which I, I did some of that too. But, but um, there's always going to have to be some rules. And then, you know, there's, it's, um, I don't really know how to, I don't really know what the perfect answer is. To be honest with you, I might have this wrong. And I want you to correct me here if I'm wrong about this, because I don't know that, that I have this exact quote from you right. I think you might have said at one point, and I, I'm paraphrasing here, Jeff, so bear with me, that you kind of felt like your time on dirt wasn't necessarily wasteful, but maybe it was a waste in the fact that maybe had you moved on to asphalt earlier, your career in NASCAR and asphalt could have progressed more. Did you say that? And if you said that, what, did, what do you mean by that? I mean, there, there's a chance that I maybe thought that was time to do And if I thought it, I probably said it. But <laughs> the, um, um, as far as the, you know, I go back and forth on, on that, on that is, is what you're saying right there. I look back at my, at my, my racing, my life racing, racing opened up so many opportunities that I cannot, I can, I can, can never repay the opportunities that get the, the opportunities that gave me outside of racing. You know, I built, my scrapyard, I've got my trash business out of what, you know, the, the racing I did in NASCAR and, and, and what it did for me there. So, with the dirt race, I never really had a, I, this is really kind of, I really never had a plan to race. I mean, I, I didn't keep, you know, everybody talks about they won 500 races or 700 or whatever. I didn't keep early on a book of that because to start with, I wasn't sure if that wasn't going to be my last race I could afford to go to. <laughs> so, I, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't log it or keep up with it. I, you know, I, it would have been just a, a guesstimate for, uh, for me to say, you know, how many, how many races that I possibly won. I mean, I'd, I'd love to say 500 or 700 or 800, but I don't really, I don't know what that is because, you know, like I said, I never really had a plan to race. It was, I, I raced and my, my father supported me. You know, when I started racing, my dad was, he owned a used car lot, and I think he owned a used car lot in, in Clarksville or Nashville or Tennessee or, or Georgia or Alabama. You had to have, a, it's required you had a race car. And so we uh, we had a little car, and, and uh, he had different drivers, and, you know, and they, there's always been some kind of dispute or whatever, not with my dad, just with somebody, and with drivers, whatever, and, and they would uh and I finally asked him. I said, "You know, if you don't mind, if you don't mind running, dude. Last one, you just let me drive some." 
And so he kind of had my career started in that. And I held up my end of it. I, I ran dead last for a long time. The most common question when I'm starting to ask people, you know, and I'm doing research on this interview, what would you ask Jeff Purvis? What would you ask Jeff Purvis? What would you ask him? It's the same question everybody has. You made the move. We talked to we, yeah. we, we made the move from, you made the move from dirt to asphalt into NASCAR. And the most common question always is, do you regret it? Do you ever have regrets about making that move? I'll ask you, do you ever have regrets? Well, my, my body does sometimes when I get up in the morning <laughs> and, um, and through the day, but no, I really don't. You know, okay. When, when I started racing, my dad supported my race. My dad, you know, he paid the bills and whatever. And at first he kept all the money because he needed to keep all the money because I tore up a lot of stuff. And then over time, he finally, you know, I got running decent enough. He said, you know, I'm, but this is later on. He said, I'm on, you need to pay your own bills. And that, that that's when racing became hard again. But the uh, when I first started racing, I, you know, I ran locally. I ran, you know, three little tracks here close by. And they were, you know, the same people normally won you know, all, all three nights. And, and, uh, and then I went up to Camelsville, Kentucky for a Sunday afternoon race and, and wasn't running. I bought a car from Jerry M and, then, and that was a, I'd won some races with, with this car that I bought from Jerry M and, and, and I, and I ran pretty good up there, but Charlie Schwartz was there. And, and, uh, um, some of the, some of the, um, the, the Kentucky group were there and and they had they had some a different type of car than that than what I had. And my dad went over and, and started a conversation with CJ Rayburn. And CJ said, Hey, you're saying Jeff needs one of these cars. So I got one of CJ Rayburn's cars and that changed dirt racing for me altogether. But you know, the the uh, I won I started winning races and I started winning a lot of races and uh, I didn't, I didn't know it then. I look back with my mom and my dad kept up with some records through the years of that. I don't remember winning. I mean, it, it, I don't remember winning the races that they marked down that I did, but I mean, I know, I know that was correct. But do you have, you, you make the decision to move to NASCAR, right? It was a big deal at the time. Do you ever look back at this point in your career and go, man, maybe I should have just stayed in dirt. Maybe I should have stayed in dirt late model racing. Do you ever have that thought? No, not really. The, uh, you know, like I said, right. And CJ Rubin came along. He, 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 he propelled my, my, my racing. And then, you know, about the 1985, 86, your, your model, James Finch comes along with the Finch construction. And James became one of my very best friends, still is to this day. And um, so, you know, we were winning dirt races one after another with James and, and James. Well, let's go try this. And he, you know, so we started some short track asphalt racing, which I was horrible at at first too. Also, <laughs> and uh, um, so we, we started doing some of that. And we went through several cars due to crashes and due to uh, just just not not perform, performing well. And then we we in, ended up finding a car that that really works. It's one of the Port City cars at that time. And then we started winning a lot of asphalt races. And then James would say, "Well, let's go try this." And so we went to Charlotte with a Charlotte with the uh, Grand National car. And, and there again, I was horrible there with that thing. And we but we just you know we just kept you know J- James became the the force behind me because he. 
you know, he, he could afford it for one thing and wanted to go do the next thing, the next thing. And so, uh, you know, maybe I didn't move, make the move quick enough or fast enough, but I look back right now and I'm, I'm happy with, with the results at the end of what I did. And, and I'm, I'm happy with, you know, what I'm doing now. So now I think, I think the timing was, was good. There has always been this idea that you and Scott Bloomquist were going to be bitter rivals forever. You know, you, him, an East Tennessee kid, by the way, of California, you, a West Central Tennessee kid from Clarksville. You know, one, one of the quotes that Scott has about you, because you, listen, you and I both know Scott is going to give a quote, right? That's what he's going to do. He's going to have some flamboyant quote. His quote was, I had heard from people that we started to give him fits, talking about you. And we were beating him enough that it was probably time for him to go. That's the end of his quote. When he says go, he means go on to NASCAR. When Jeff Purvis hears that quote from Scott Bloomquist, what does he think? Um, the, the one thing I can say right here is, is he is in, he is a serious talent. Always has been. When he came when he came here from California, I remember going to, in over in East Tennessee, and and he he was I mean he was fast off the trailer. He was he he was a force. And you know he he made me step up my game, but I never had any trouble. I, I never had any problem with somebody making me step up my game. And so, but no, I've heard I've heard that and read that several times. And you know whether he said it or not, I'm sure, sure he probably did. But but the uh, the, the reason I told you the reasons behind every move I made, you know, from, from '86 on forward was uh, uh, was something that uh, you know James Finch. Said, let's go do this and let's go do that. It, it wasn't. It wasn't because that uh, he thought it was time for me to move on. Because you know, I guess I guess I could have run second for a while. I don't really know. But, um, <laughs> but no, it was it was all good. The um, the listen. I still like watching him race. I, I, when I when I when I turn on the TV channel or whatever and I see that you know that he's in one of the races. Yes, I want to watch him because he he is he changed a lot of the. You know, a lot of, a lot. I mean, he, he there's several, several people comes along through time, and it changes the course of racing. And 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 when he came along, maybe he he started bringing the lighter cars in the, you know, which my cars were pretty much in there already. But you know, he he made he made made you look at things that you didn't look at. So he he, he was he's good for racing. Do you have a funny Scott Bloomquist story? Some pits, you know, some Glasgow, Kentucky, nineteen eighty six, you know, dust up you and him had, or just any funny Scott Bloomquist anecdote, Jeff, that you have? Not really, you know. The we didn't spend, you know, we we we, we were there's a little difference between he and I, and, and I never really, not not really, I I wasn't around him that much. I mean, we raced each other, and then. And he he was no different than I was. When he got through racing, he's already ready. He, he's thinking about the next race, and that's what I did. I didn't. That race was already over with before, you know. Before you get the checkered flag, um, I'm already into you know what we're going next and what we're going next. And, and so I didn't spend a lot of time at the racetrack, you know, socializing or anything else. I'm, I came there for a reason, and when I left, I either accomplished what I came there for or I didn't. And Either way, according to C.J. Raven, I was never happy. <laughs> I mean, Raven told me just a couple of weeks ago, probably a month ago, that that uh, that I helped him in his racing because he said he said you would he said I would win a race and tell him what was wrong with, what was wrong with everything he had, 
And I look back and I think, you know, my wife tells me the same thing. So, you know, I don't know. Maybe that's, <laughs> maybe that's my personality. You know, you mentioned that you weren't a guy that like went out a lot and stuff, but your counterparts back in the mid eighties, you know, not only Bloomquist and Moyer, <laughs> but Larry Moore, yeah. Charlie Schwartz, CJ Rayburn, Bob Pierce. I have heard some really wild Larry Moore, Bob Pierce rated R stories from back in the day. And Larry Moore would always tell me, Oh, Purvis was the golden boy. Purvis was the golden boy. He wouldn't go out with us. He was, he was straight and narrow. Is that true? And did they give you a hard time? Cause you weren't out drinking and womanizing and everything else with all these guys till all hours of the night. Okay. As far as, as far as Larry goes, you know, there's not, there's not anybody ever been as, as good as Larry Moore. He ch- he's one of those people that truly changed the course of racing along the way, and uh, and no, I, I really I wasn't very well. I wasn't disliked or I wasn't su- snubbed or whatever, you know, in, in the pits. But I really, you know, I came I came there and and and, and came for a reason and I left, like I said earlier. But uh, now I I really didn't do a lot of the. You know, one thing is, I there, there was there was a few years difference in the age when when I showed up. You know, there's you know there's there was a few there's some, some years difference in age on everybody, and so there really wasn't anybody for me to run around with. Which if there was, I really didn't do very much to start with. So, so yeah, I was. Uh, uh, there, there was a there was a little there 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 was a difference in in personalities, I guess. I, but there again, I'm still not one to. Yeah, you know, like I said, I like to come to work and do and and change whatever I can or do whatever, and then and then pretty much go home. Larry likes to take credit for giving you the nickname, the Golden Boy. How did you feel about the nickname, the Golden Boy? Did you like it or no? You know, I read that. I, you know, I, that, that there was I had several nicknames, and, they, and that was one of the kinder ones. Yeah, <laughs> but the uh, but the uh, you know I read that in in a magazine for, or something from the World One Hundred. And I, and I, I was always told that Larry Moore was the, was the reason for that. So I don't know where that came from because what they, what I knew that they didn't know, there was no golden, golden boy. I had to work. I mean, it was like, you know, um, Ken, you know, Kenny Schrader, good friend of mine. He, he always acted like that, you know, that, I mean, he, he plays about it. He, he knows totally, he knows different, but that, you know, things were like, handed me on on a platter well that wasn't that was never the case i had to work for all of it i washed my stuff more than most people to make it look like the the appearance looked like that everything was great but but it was tough times so maybe that nickname wasn't fitting you know i don't i don't think it i don't think it was right for you i think you you were too good looking that was the problem i guess that's what my wife said well, he was too Man. good look he was too good looking of a guy maybe that's why you got it <laughs> that, that was uh, that was kind the um i think i think i think it was kind of given because of, of the thought but i mean larry, larry knows he knows that the 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 reason that i had any success was because i worked for it i was going to ask you if you thought you know everyone's always saying is it bloomquist or moyer the best ever you think larry moore is the best do you think he's better than both those guys i think he i think he changed i think he's you know you know billy and i yeah i've yeah, he's always been one but we've always been good friends and billy and i came along about the same same time and you know he was with Larry Shaw, and and, and so there, there was, you know, there there was this time period that um, that you know we were, we were kind of equals, and then um, and then Scott came along, and and you know he 
I don't, I don't know. I guess, you know, I always go back to, you know, who's, who's better here or not is, you know, the, the, the scorecard is kind of like the world 100 for me. I mean, I just like to go there and see how many times you've been here, how many times you won this race, where have you finished? And that's the scorecard. I can't, you know, through the year, I can't really, I can't say which one's better or not right there. They, 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 there's two different styles of drivers to me. In your dirt late model career, what was your favorite racetrack? Was it Eldora or was it somewhere else? You know, Eldora, Eldora was, Eldora scared the shit out of me. When I, <laughs> when, when, when I first got there, I went, I went and built, went to Rayburn's, got a car and whatever. And we went up there in 1982. I think it was the first year I went there. And I looked at that track when I came across it and I thought, this is going to be in, extremely embarrassing. And went out there and qualified good, and then and then here we go into the race, and I I take off and I'm leading this race, and you know they're again scared to death every lap, and and uh, the the strongest year that I probably ever that I ever went to the World 100 was the, that the first year in no the second year I'm sorry I'm back to the second year the first the first year I went there I'm, I'm leading you wrong again the first year i went there i won the race second year i came back and i ran second the first year that's what it was i'm sitting here questioning myself i was leading the race broke a spoiler uh uh mike duval took over the lead i had to pull off and, and fix but the spoiler broke caution came out of going to the piston and fix it go to the back back of the race come back to the front and I'm passing him, and all of a sudden, I have a fuel pickup problem. And I start to get off the racetrack, start to pull in the back bit, down the back straightaway there, and it takes off again. So I go back on the racetrack, and he beats me across the line a half car lane. What's one area you think dirt late model racing missed the boat? And by that, I mean, was there a point in time or a fork in the road where late model racing zigged and we should have zagged or we should have, we went one way or we should have gone another. Do you think we've made, what, what mistake maybe would you say we've made along the way? I don't really know. I, I, I can't, I can't pinpoint any one, one thing. I, I can, I can go outside the box here and tell you what, what I think as far as I think NASCAR, when they, when they, when they started pulling dry, dirt drivers off of, dirt racing and making them just run because of sponsorship or whatever. They hurt dirt racing a little bit, but I think when NASCAR let it started letting the, the, the Kyle Larson's and some of these drivers go back and, and, and start running the dirt racing, I think it's helped both sides of racing, but I can, I can't pinpoint the one thing that I think dirt racing missed because, you know, it's, it's not, it's, it's, it's hard to organize dirt racing you know across the board and so i, I don't really know I'm, I'm kind of would you have done that back in the day jeff if if your nascar obligations would have allowed you would you have gone and done what kyle larson's doing and run dirt late model races on wednesdays thursdays and fridays and then done nascar on sunday have you watched that kid <laughs> i mean if, if i was as good as him yes i would i mean you know he on thanksgiving night he's racing a, a dirt race somewhere i mean he he, he he's a talent to watch, but the um, would I have yes? I mean, the, the next thing I could really couldn't afford to. He was that you know, it was cost effective for me to be able to do some of that. But now you know, which there again, the cost of living has gone up that much too. There's a uh, um, 
you know, I would have, I would have liked to have done more of both. Yes. Do you think, you know, you talk about the Buck Simmons and the Larry Moores and all that from the eighties and stuff was everybody sort of romanticizes that time. It's a more romantic era of dirt track racing. Why do you think that is? Is it because guys were working on their cars and, and working jobs and then going to the races? Or what is it about that era, the Larry Moore, Charlie Schwartz, Jeff Purvis, beginnings of Bloomquist and Moyer? Why do we love that time so much? I don't know, but you're right. I can't, I can't answer the question. I guess, I mean, maybe you have a better answer for it than I do, but I don't, I don't know what the answer of that is, but there was a little bit of glory time right through there. Not necessarily just for me, but racing dirt race racing in general was really big through those years and and you know i look back even at watch i mean again i keep basing everything off of eldora and and seeing some of these georgia cars going up into ohio and running that track i mean there, there was a lot of crossing of, of boundaries during that time i think you know like like for the longest time everybody in georgia raced in, in just in georgia the little local tracks in tennessee did the same thing and then they started traveling I think that's the first part of the traveling scene that you that you're talking of. That's when people that's when the Larry Moores and started started coming to, you know, off of asphalt into dirt and, and, and chasing the bigger, bigger money races. So that, that's for a long time is it used racing three to three hundred or five hundred dollars a week and a night and and hoped a lot of the tracks you went to that they could afford to pay. We see, you know, we see Scott Bloomquist right now winning races in his fifties. Billy Moyer winning races in his fifties. Could Jeff Purvis yeah. get in a dirt late model right now and win a race? Well, not in my fifties because I'm not fifty. Yeah, you know what I mean. And in, in you're in yeah, your I little bit, uh, you're you're t- more of your twilight years than than your other years. I, I know, but you know, I, I don't. I'm not. I'm not blind to the fact that you know, people talk to me. Every day, it, I, there's very few days that I go that somebody's not talking to me about some type of racing, and they talk to me like, you know, we're going, we're fixing to go, you know, tonight or whatever. <laughs> and you know, I got hurt in NASCAR, and you know, I got injured pretty bad to the point that I should have never, you know, I, but it was it's kind of a bad deal on my family and on my body for sure. But I got injured in in um, 2001. And today, this is 2019. Okay. And before that, it was, you know, like the late, you know, mid-90s or whatever. It's pretty much the last really dirt. So, I mean, we're, we're talking we're talking a lot of years back. I mean, we're 20 years, 25 or 6 years ago. But but it really, it still does astonish me. A lot of people have a lot of comments and conversation and, and, and was around during that time of racing. You you mentioned those crashes. You had the crash the Nazareth crash in NASCAR is a very famous crash that I I say to people on YouTube, you know, YouTube that Jeff Purvis Nazareth crash. You had the yeah. two thousand six crash when you were on the way to Talladega short track in your hauler, uh where you broke worst your, crash of my life. Worst crash. And I, I was reading an article about that broken broken back, broken neck, just all sorts of issues you had from that. You have had some tough physical and emotional moments in your career. Have you ever said to yourself, like, why me? My goodness, this is, you have been through some stuff now, Jeff. I, I, I never really, I truly have never said that. The, um, uh, you know, the, the Nazareth deal was a, was a bad, bad deal. I mean, it was, it, it, it snapped a lot of bones. It's, it was, it's hard. It was, it was a bad deal. The, 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 the hauling rig 
we we never rode in that in that thing. And my wife, for whatever reason, said, "Why don't we just ride in the truck?" Because it was a very very nice truck, one of Mike Bones' uh, haulers, and and so we decided to ride in that truck. And my son Clay was in in you know whatever for whatever reason I've always said, "Don't get up in that top bunk when we're when trucks going down the road to sleep." Well, he decides that he's going to get in the top bunk going down the road to sleep, and so we're. Uh, we're going along, we blow out the left front tire and, and Matt Angel was driving this truck at the time. And when he did, it was no, no fault of his. And they pulled it to the left, went through the ditch. And then we went in oncoming traffic on highway 65 at three o'clock on Saturday afternoon. And, uh, but having your family in there and you're aware that they're going through this accident with you was the most terrifying thing I've ever done in my life. One thing I read about that was, your wife asked you during the crash if it was over, but it was during the yeah. moment when you were airborne and you were suspended in the air. You know, it, it, it was, sure, it was a split second, but it felt <laughs> like an eternity. Uh, that had to be just an insane feeling. Yeah, it's, 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 you've, uh, you've, you've got good information there because, yes, she did. And, uh, and, and I pretty much had, I'd already gotten, when, when we, hit, we hit one of the turnaround medians in, in the interstate, and, and and when it did, it was a stun of a blow, and we went, we basically went airborne, and and that's when she had said, and we'd already gone through a tremendous crash when from that first part before before it went airborne, and when it did, I told her, I said, she said, is it over? And I said, not yet. And then we started, we started, we hit some cars, and went the guard running, and the do um, not be confused; those trees will stop you. <laughs> Yeah, it brought it to a stunning stop, but the uh, uh, but that was that was a that was a bad bad deal. How many bones have you broken in your career, Jeff? How many do you know? <laughs> uh, no, no, the you know till I when I was till forty forty two years old and really hadn't broken my finger playing basketball or football or something. But really hadn't, hadn't didn't have many broken bones, but I made up for it from then on. <laughs> you broke plenty. Last thing I'm going to yeah. ask you, 50th yeah. World 100 next year. Yeah. Would you consider coming back? I think Eldora is trying to organize some things with some drivers. And for the, I would love to have you there as part of the broadcast. For the 50th World 100, would you come back next year, Eldora? We, uh, I have some friends that, that from when I very first went, they, they started going there. And they, and they don't even normally go to races, but they, they, uh, um, one of my friends is from South, Florida, South Georgia. His name's Kenny Fudge. He and his his brothers and friends that, that were around during the racing, all the racing with me, they um, um, they go to the World 100. I I went up there a few years ago. My wife and I did, and and, and we we have uh, uh, we we've, we've talked about going, which I know we need to go ahead. I'd like to go on the suites, but we we talked about going back next year for that. Well, wow. yes, I, I will go back, and, and, and it probably will be next year. Well, I can't. I mean, I, that just gets me excited just thinking about it. Jeff, I mean, I could talk to you. We've been talking for 40 minutes. I could talk to you for hours about dirt late model racing. One thing I will say, a takeaway that I have from this interview is I think there's this stigma out there that you don't pay attention to racing or aren't that plugged in anymore, but you're paying attention to Kyle Larson racing on Thanksgiving night and Jonathan Davenport. You seem like you're still pretty plugged in. You may not show it publicly, but you know what's going on out there, don't you? I don't know that I, I'm. I'm. I'm a race fan now. I'm. I'm. You know. That, that, and, and you know, I'm like anybody else. I have favorites, and and uh, I do watch it because there's some. There's some lot. There's a lot of drivers, and 
and that that has brought excitement back to it for people like me. And so maybe maybe I've got a little bit more time to watch or something, but I don't think that's the case. I think there's 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 a lot of good talent out there right now. Jeff Purvis, the first official guest on the Rigsby Report. I, I cannot tell you thank you enough. I know you don't do this a ton. Uh, I look forward to seeing you at Eldora this coming year, bud. And uh, anytime you want to watch a race on Dirt on Dirt, you shoot me a text message and I'll get you hooked up. Okay, buddy? Be, be looking for it. Thank you, so. All right. Thanks, Jeff. We roll into Friend Zone, as I'm calling it. And who else would we have on the first Friend Zone but Todd Turner, the ultimate friend of DOD? Todd, I just got done with Purvis. Uh, give me your best Jeff Purvis memory. What is it? Yeah, you know what I what I hate is that uh, you know I came to the sport a little bit late, so Purvis was kind of transitioning to asphalt when I was really starting to be kind of a super fan and going. But and I know this story is a little bit uh, simplistic, but I'll never forget we went uh, when I was at school in Bowling Green. Uh, at Western Kentucky, we went out to Glasgow one night for one of those Kentucky classics. Uh, and it, it, it was some crazy race. I can't even remember. <laughs> I don't remember asking people about it. But, like, Gil ends up parked on the front stretch complaining about a call, and the race has gone on and on. It was just a crazy finish. <laughs> but I remember Purvis dropped out earlier, and on our way back home, we were driving down 31W or something on the way to Dr. Bowling Green, and we came upon that kind of famous box cube band oh, yeah. of Purvis with the 15 on it, you know, with an open trailer. And I just remember we were just so excited to see him, and we were like kind of pulled aside and kind of open the windows and wave our arms out and give him a, give him a honk and stuff. It was just like, it was like so weird to think, wow, this is one of the biggest guys in the sport. And he's left this, you know, 5,000 win race and he's driving two hours back to Clarksville. And <laughs> I, it just, just like, it, it seems very quaint now, you know, thinking about how some of the big guys are all, uh, but it was just such a, like a, um, a great memory of like, Hey, look, it's, you know, here he is. I don't know. Well, I, I saw, Blo- I saw, and- I saw at a county fair one time. You know, it was like the same thing. Like, you know, the, I always, I think I said in the in the beginning of the the interview with him, like he was like, what is the half horse, half man creature? Is it centaur, minotaur? What what is uh, it? Minotaur. <laughs> yes, Purvis right. was like a yeah. Purvis was like a minotaur to me, like this mythical being that like may or may not. We know it didn't exist, but like, oh my god, you know, this is Purvis, and so I think that's what you're getting at. You see him like just on the side of the road stopped was like such a treat, right? Well, what I hate about it is back those days going to Glasgow is that. I, if I only could realize what I was seeing, because many times they'd have those specials on like a Thursday and it would get uh-huh. Blinkwist, Moyer and Purvis and Boggs. And you're like, and now you look back and you're like, oh my goodness, those four guys in one place for some random $5,000 race was huge. And I appreciated it, but not as much as I would now, you know, now seeing like, you know, time go by. Dave Argerbright always says, I'm like, I always make the comment to him. I said, hey, things aren't what they once were. But he says, yeah, but what is? Nothing's as good as it once was. And I'm kind of like, and I think he's trying to get like, you know, we should appreciate what we have now. But things might have been better. I mean, those four guys on a Thursday night in Glasgow. Yeah, you're right. That was better. (laughs) That's better than anything we have now. You and I have, have seen major dirt late model schedules. We've seen them both, right? You know, I know you just looked at the Outlaws one, the Lucas one. I mean, they're they're fine. They're they're fine schedules, obviously. You know, nothing. I don't think it really totally leaps off the page. Uh, the spring event that the Outlaws are going to announce on Monday uh, in the great state of Iowa may be the the most sort of like oh one on that schedule. But 
Is it too late in the game now for these guys to shake it up? Or is it just kind of, it is what it is? Or will we go through a renaissance on schedules? Because I kind of think we got what we got now maybe a little bit, or maybe we'll have a renaissance one day. What do you think? Well, I think part of it is, is what we want or what like, our <laughs> fandom in us wants is not yeah. what the series wants. You know, like Lucas Oil has very much like kind of manicured this kind of pretty regular schedule, which which I'm sure for them makes life much easier. Yeah. It lets their drivers keep up with what's going on and they kind of get the rhythm of the tour. You know, we want to pick up the schedule and say, oh, my goodness, I can't believe they're going, you know, here and there and all these other racetracks. So, I mean, I think it's like diverting uh, goals. You know, we, we, we would rather be surprised and, and all find all these exciting things out. Whereas the series, they would rather, you know, less surprises is better for them. So don't I, you, I don't know. I mean, don't you think that we should be in charge of scheduling? And I'm like, not really joking when I say that. Like, I always feel like, like I've always joked, I should be in charge of dirt late model scheduling. And I, and I would want you right there with me. I literally think I could come up with the best schedule for everyone. <laughs> Am I right or wrong about that? Yes. Yeah. I mean, how, how many of the discussions we have going up and down the road are talking about that? I mean, just like, like every detail about how the, such and such would work and how they should go to this track and how putting these races in this order would make the most sense. I mean, it's, it's, it's fun to, to, to talk about. I guess maybe that's why it makes it a little bit underwhelming when we see, see the real thing and it's something practical that makes sense, you know, screw practicality. I would like Michael Rigsby scheduling czar is what I would like that my official title to be. So if you could, <laughs> you could, you could cook up some business yeah. cards for me. Give we'll, me, uh, give me yeah, something. We'll get a plaque and everything. Oh, I like that. If 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 we're not going to be excited about the schedule, give me something to be excited. Not not okay. There we go. You know what? Screw it. I'm 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 gonna say I'm not that excited about it. If we're not going to be that excited about the schedule for next year, I mentioned in the open the news at PRI that's coming out. Some of the things that the big news that you know the the these guys are moving to this and they're doing that or whatever. I, I give me something else to be excited for for 2020. Is there anything you're excited for? Is there anything? Is the season is now like three freaking weeks away that you're like, yeah, I'm I'm excited about this. That that does kind of drain on me. I am, but the but the first stuff is is kind of neat. And then you know we've had Arizona grow and grow and grow and be better. Now they're throwing New Mexico in the mix. I, I remember. I mean, it was ten or twelve. I actually maybe in the kind of the very end of the have a Tampa days when there was like a oh can we ever go out and make a California swing or yeah. make a Western swing? You know, Mike Swins and those guys would talk about it, and it was kind of like seeing that would be kind of like coming full circle to really having a national tour and you know it's just it hasn't been real made a lot of sense to do it but i mean really we're closer than we ever have now i think maybe what the disappointment is is there's not there's not a a reasonable way to kind of come back you know and go to texas or go to some of those tracks that you know we we skip over four states to go over here (laughs) i mean that doesn't always make the most sense and i understand it's kind of off-season stuff but man it would be uh um a california swing or something like that or kind of having a true western part of the season like even i don't know i can't remember when this was but you know they said that asphalt stuff at tucson in the winter and is there auto racing man it's like hey look here's the auto racing in january you know well, and, part of the problem is too like it. you mentioned texas it's gonna be cold in new mexico like i'll just say it people don't really know that right now but it, that is not a particularly warm time around in las cruces so i think january is yeah, tough right i mean sure. I, I don't know. And like California, I always hear those non-wing sprint car promoters and stuff out there say they cannot make money on a 10,000 to win late mile race. 
So somebody's got to do that, though, right? I mean, Lucas's corporate headquarters is in California. Somebody's going to make that happen. I I would think so, and it would be fun to really make that work. The what's what's disappointing is California. Really, it's late models. It could not be any lower. I mean, really, <laughs> in the late nineties and the very early part of the century, things were going pretty good out yeah. there, and they could get you know eighteen or twenty you know reasonable cars for a show, and that's just a pipe dream now. Well, you, here's a hot button topic for you, and I feel like I'm Stephen A. Smith right now. Last couple things, it's, it should do my Stephen A. Listen up. Um, here's this. Ready? Here comes my hot button uh, sports morning show talk show like 24 hour programming. Gotta fill content question for you. Ready? Here we go. Do we still need PRI, and is it necessary? Todd Turner debate. What do you What do you think? Um. Yeah, I think it still serves a purpose. And I know, you know, we, we're in this world now where everything is online. And I mean, right now, my wife is right down there having a conference call from people across the globe. You know, I mean, <laughs> we can do things remotely and maybe some of that PRI stuff can be replaced. But I think maybe in this sport, it is, uh, there is a value for that face-to-face stuff for, for, for certain people. I mean, um, you know, even drivers, sometimes they end up going to one track or one part of the country once a year, and maybe they don't see all these people. So, I mean, I think there is some value to that. Uh, For me, my personal appetite of it is I kind of enjoy going, but seriously, by about 2 o'clock the first, yeah, I kind of do. But really, not like about two o'clock the first day. I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> I thought you I mean, were, just, just past lunch, <laughs> just past lunch, you're I, I out. I don't mean that in a bad way. It's just, you know, I kind of, you know, because I, you know, you get there early and you hustle and you try to find, you know, you try to dig up everything you can. And so, you know, you, you know, it's not like I'm just sitting around. Now, if you're a little more casual, you can make it a little last a little bit longer. So, I mean, I get that. I don't see anybody going, oh my goodness, this is going to be great all three days. I'm going to be going down every hour. <laughs> but there are people days. that think that, and they're lunatics. What is wrong with them? I, That's what I can't I get guess. over. They walk around with these stupid bags putting in all the mints and candy and gum uh, and everything they can in them. Don't get the bag, people. And, and, and we really do have to talk about people like getting in the way. Oh, and, you know, oh my goodness. The, but it's worse than trying to lap cars in in the, well, you know what's my rule worse, on lapping it's worse, what's worse my rule on lapping cars as well shout out to Gary Hall and Brady Cup for the Taswell reference what's my rule on lapping cars you know I feel the leader should always be able to dump a lapped car and I will stand behind that yeah. until the day I die I think I should be able to push people down in the hallways at PRI I've, I'm pretty sure I've seen it <laughs> How about it when they're looking around, right? Because the numbers, the numbers of the aisles are higher. They're on the floor, but nobody looks on the floor. So they're right damn dead center in the aisle, and their heads are looking up. And they're just mouth breathers walking around. They just can't figure anything out. It's the ugh, I just want to kill everyone when I see it. And you and I are flying around there, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I'm, I've always got a destination. Yeah, you know, I try not to just wander too much. I mean, just you know, be focused. Ooh, I've used the term mouth breather on the show. It's great. We're off to a great start. Uh, <laughs> last, 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 people wanted me to be more honest. Uh, last thing, we had a decade we're finishing up. Um, who dominates the next decade of late model racing? Pretty simple. You know, Brandon Shepard, Bobby Pierce, yada, yada, young hot shoe thing. Or is it, is Scott Bloomquist going to be in his mid 60s? I mean, <laughs> crushing out there. 
I mean, those two names, those two guys from Illinois, you said, I mean, they just, I mean, they, they are super young and they are, I guess, I mean, I guess in reality, they may not be at the top of their game, which is hard to imagine that they can get better, but those two are going to be, it's kind of neat maybe that they'll be facing off a lot, but those two lead the way. And yeah, I think it is going to be generally younger guys. I mean, Bloomquist, I mean, that, that is a tough injury to come back from. Three to four years. He's, he's, yeah, I mean, he's going to be done soon. Yeah, people see him get out of the car or something. And, I mean, I look at something like that. Those are things that are uh, – and I think we'll look at Bloomquist's career, you know, some of his eras. One of them will be before and after this act, this motorcycle yeah. accident. Um, and, and, and if he can bring it back and, and, and sustain, you know, what he's done, it will be remarkable, but it's just hard to imagine there will be, uh, kind of a clear delineation between, you know, what he accomplished before this wreck and afterwards. What I've always said though, is I don't care, you know, like those futuristic movies where they take people's heads and they put them in the jars and they're still living, like their brain function is there. <laughs> like I want, the, I want the decapitated head of Scott Bloomquist, like hot lapping at Florence in 2000, 2056 is what I want. Like this is floating orb head of Scott Bloomquist is still racing. Yeah, like cryogenic. Yeah, that would be, that would be interesting. Uh, all right, Todd, any, any more good things on Purvis, and nothing else. Just the last, this one last little Purvis nugget. Just I need it more Purvis. He, he was he was so great, and I mean, I'm part part of the fact that leaves it wide open is that uh, uh, what could he have been? You know, like Bo the Jackson Purvis lovers. He's Bo Jackson. Yeah, right. for yeah, for a few years later, the Purvis lovers could say, yeah, well, Purvis was here. You know, about everything, and it was funny because my non racing friends. He knew I loved Purvis, you know, so they used to hear about him in NASCAR. Yeah. Stuff. So he became like, you know, kind of a famous person. And all, everybody would kind of make fun of me about him because they knew I loved him so much. But it was, but it was kind of neat. So, you know, here's this guy that was, you know, you're passing his cube band one day and the next day he's racing at Daytona. I mean, it, it, it was neat to see somebody make that jump. How do we do? I think we did pretty good, didn't we? First one, that's pretty good, don't you think? I think it was solid. <laughs> Love you, Todd. Thanks. Yeah, good job. So there it is. The first Rigsby Report podcast, episode one. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, they, I, you know, I want to say they're not all going to be that long, but I don't know. I mean, this what are we, an hour? A little over an hour? Something like that? Hour 15? Uh, it, it, listen, my takeaway on the Purvis was just he still pays attention, right? Like that guy, I think people think he doesn't, he's not plugged in. Jeff Purvis is still paying attention to what's going. He knows that Kyle Larson's running turkey night. You got to be plugged in to know Kyle Larson's running turkey night. Uh, by the way, Kyle Larson is a generational talent. I've never said it on the air before. That's a guy that's in NASCAR because he deserves to be in NASCAR. He didn't buy a ride. He didn't do anything else. Kyle Larson is a freaking generational talent, and that's why he got there. Sorry, just had to riff about that for a second. Uh, felt good to be open and honest in this podcast. There's going to be a lot more of that. Uh, don't forget, too, a lot of racing coming up for us. PRI this weekend, but then the next week, the Gateway Dirt Nationals live at DirtOnDirt.com. Every lap, all three nights, we will be in St. Louis the entire week for the Gateway Dirt Nationals with a special late model live on Wednesday night. But don't forget, uh, Gateway Dirt Nationals coming up live on DOD. Um, and we're looking forward to it. But uh, until then, thanks, everybody, for tuning in to Rigsby Report Episode 1. Uh, we'll catch you on the flip side. Thanks, guys. See you at PRI.